Hello, and welcome to episode 79 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people that create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Well, I have a few user group meetup type things to uh, announce this week. Uh, first of all, I'd like to mention the St. Louis Closure Meetup, which is happening Tuesday, May 26th at 7 p.m. This is in 2015 here. Um, they'll be talking about Closure Script one month in this, this time around. So if you're in the St. Louis area, you should check them out. Um, likewise, if you're in Greenville, South Carolina, the Greenville, South Carolina Closure User Group is meeting on Thursday, May 21st at 6.30 p.m. Um, apparently, they are talking about Closure versus Daily Fantasy Sports. Not quite sure what that means, but it's interesting enough that I would go if I were anywhere near there. Um, speaking of places I'm not near, <laughs> we have our very own Stuart Sierra, who is over in Scotland right now. Um, and on the 21st of May at 7 p.m., he will be speaking in Glasgow um, about Datomic. So if you're in Scotland and you want to go meet Stuart, um, please do so. Uh, Stuart's one of my favorite people to work with. Um, so he's always got good stuff to say, and I think it'll be really interesting to hear him talk about Datomic. Uh, finally, I want to mention a correction. Last time around, I said I mentioned the closure bridge that's being held in Helsingborg, and I even said what a cool name of a city that is, and it is, I think. Um, but I said it was in Germany. Sorry, that city is in Sweden. I'm guessing that if you were near enough to go to that event, you probably already knew that. But I will repeat, uh, there will be a closure bridge event held in Helsingborg, Sweden, and that's May 29th and 30th, uh, again, 2015. Uh, I think that's all we have for you today, so we will go ahead and go on to episode 79 of the Cognicast. We're going to go ahead and launch into this then. Okay, welcome everybody. Today is Friday, the 10th of April in the year 2015, and this is the Cognicast. And today we are very, very pleased to welcome not one, not two, but three guests to the show, two of them whom you've met before. I'm referring, of course, to Paul DeGrandis. So welcome, Paul. Thank you. And to Alex Miller. Hello. And um, also to Alex's wife, Mary Kayser Miller. Welcome, Mary. Thank you. So this is your first time on the show. Both of these jokers have been on before, so we thought that we would give you the opportunity to um, give us our usual lead into the show, which is where we ask one of our guests to share with us some experience of art, whatever that means to them. So uh, we didn't give you much warning, but uh, it sounds like you were able to come up with something that you'd like to share. So what would you like to share with us today? Well, when I was thinking of art, I was thinking more of uh, pictures and things, but recently we watched the movie Whiplash. It was about a a drummer who went to, was it Juilliard? Uh, it was a made-up school, I think. But yeah. it was something like yeah. that, yeah. I really clicked with the movie. And Alex was like, why did you like that so much? And I think I like to see someone who has such talent struggle to get better. That kind of just resonated with me, the, the whole movie of being really good at something and struggling to get better at it. That's interesting. And I think one of the things that we want to talk about today, the main thing I think is, I guess I don't know, but to, to, to my, and I'll, I'll reveal this in a little bit, but I think one could argue that there's an element of struggle, although the people on this, uh, my guests here are going to be better able to express whether that's true or not. So what was it? Was it um, the, the fact, if I was being ungenerous, and I hope I'm not, I, I would wonder, that almost sounds like a sort of bit of shade and fraud, like, you know, like, oh, this person has so much talent, and yet they still have to work hard to to improve it was i i suspect that's not what you're saying what was it about that specifically that uh, appealed to you so much uh something like uh fulfilling your human potential sort of thing that's sort of... well and also is it is it possible to be really good at something without some sort of struggle mm, interesting yeah. i mean okay. is, it, is it possible for kids who have everything to ever be really great at something unless they have a bit of a struggle well, that's, that's great. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, we've mentioned before that we very intentionally chose art as the subject for the lead-in, and uh, you would be far from the first person to observe that art and struggle seem to be somehow linked. So I think that's, that's, a, that's a very interesting observation. So, um, you know, some people might be wondering, I, I, I referred to a 
the topic. Now, you know, there might there's other things we can talk about today too, but there's definitely one thing that I want to make sure we cover today because all of the people, all of my guests today have some experience with this. I will say right up front that I have none. So I hope that I don't at any point ask uh, questions that are in any way a problem for anybody. I mean, I just, I just don't know anything about this topic. The thing I'm referring to obliquely until now is dyslexia. I want to start with a question, and I don't know who could best answer this. I suspect it's Mary. Although, actually, I'm curious. Anyone wants to jump in on this. I don't even know how to say a person who is affected by dyslexia. I could say they suffer from it, they have it. Like, mm. I, is that a – how – help me out here, people. Like, what's the right way to put that? Sure. Um, about a year ago, I was saying my son was diagnosed with dyslexia, which made it sound like this was a horrible disease. So lately, I have been saying that he's been identified with dyslexia. Mm. I like that. I mean, to me, it's no different than saying you're right-handed or left-handed. I'm dyslexic, you know. You are, mm-hmm. you are not dyslexic. That's the difference. Gotcha. Hey, and uh, and you haven't mentioned it yet, but so Mary and I are on because our son Beck has dyslexia. Or I guess maybe you mentioned it, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, when when he talks about it, he says I have dyslexia. Yep. And so. Okay, interesting. So that's I like uh, the way. So to be clear, Paul, when you said I am dyslexic, you were speaking the literal truth, which is the reason that we've that we have you on the show today. You weren't just. <laughs> using an example of a sentence as one would say it. So um, I think this was a great opportunity. This actually came up in one of our internal chat rooms uh, the other day. You know, Alex has spoken before about the fact that uh, his son is dyslexic. And Paul piped up and said, oh, I am also dyslexic. And I actually hadn't been aware of that. And I said, this is a really interesting topic, I think, for a a show with the name like the Cognicast, right? I mean, obviously, we like to talk a lot about thinking, usually about software But, you know, we've taken on the topics, uh, other topics before, most notably perhaps uh, depression. And I think really anything that affects the human condition is fair game for this show. You know, we say software and the people that create it. And and we certainly have people on this call that that create software. But when it was, as we've said before, to their families. And so I thought, what a great opportunity to get multiple perspectives on this this topic. Uh, You know, Paul, who is a dyslexic. Uh, Alex and Mary, who are uh, raising a dyslexic. So I guess that's good in the way of introduction. Maybe maybe what I could get from, and I'm just going to arbitrarily pick Paul to maybe start us off. What exactly is dyslexia? I mean, again, I'm a total ignoramus here. To me, it's, well, sometimes letters are reversed or something in that general range. What is dyslexia, Paul? Yeah, I mean, I think your initial thing, like letters are rearranged or whatever, like that's what people typically think of. I... I personally self-identify it as like the way that I think. I I actually, you know, think about information or ingest information, usually written information, much differently than other people. You know, so for me, like dyslexia is just like a different way that my brain is wired, like a different th- thinking process, how I comprehend and ingest information. And different in what sense? You know, the... <laughs> I mean, it's sort of hard to say different in what sense without like telling a, a story, but I, I'll do my best. Like, um, we like stories. <laughs> <laughs> like, I can't read fiction books uh, very easily. Only since, I guess, halfway through college and after college was I really able to do that because I actually can't put together parts of stories in that way. I can't, I can't incrementally put stories together in that way or characters together in that way. Uh, And it actually comes down to not just the words, but the actual stories itself, whereas like nonfiction, like understanding the big picture up front and seeing the entire big picture and understanding how these big pictures relate to each other and then being able to fill in details to those big pictures um, afterwards. Like that's how I process information. So if you try to tell me small details incrementally, I won't be able to actually assemble them into anything coherent. Well, that's int- that's really interesting. So, uh, Alex and Mary, I wonder if that matches with your experience of uh, of your of your sons, you know, growing up. I don't know that I've observed that necessarily. Although maybe it's just that he's not. He's so uh, our son Beck is in third grade, and I'm not. Maybe it's just that he's not able to express it in that way. <laughs> but I, I think that he tends to make wide and interesting connections more so than other kids. So I see him, he's a very creative thinker and he'll make uh, distant connections 
that other people wouldn't, I think. And so that's sort of how some of the, which is one of the ways I see him sort of in a thinking differently than, than our other kids or other kids his age. Uh, Mary, how about you? Does that, uh, what, what would, did, how did, uh, what Paul said resonate with you? Um, I agree with Alex. Um, he's only eight years old and I'm not sure we've seen that yet. From what I read though, they are big picture thinkers, but it's hard to, to see that yet in him. Sure. I have, I have two kids myself and they're, they kind of bracket his age. You know, one of them is 10 and one of them is seven. And I, I, <laughs> any kid that age, it, it can be a little bit difficult to, to interpret like their reasoning abilities as it is because, you know, they're kids, but, um, right. So is it, what's fascinating to me so far is that nothing anybody has said, well, I guess the one thing Paul said that sounded like a limitation was I have a hard time reading fiction. And so I guess one of the things that comes to my mind is to what extent is this condition a disadvantage? And if it is, is it a disadvantage that arises out of things like the way the school system is structured, for instance? Or is it, or is it something more along the lines of, I, I don't know, like, like a limitation? Do you know what I'm trying to say by that? Well, it's definitely a limitation in the uh, public schools. Most school systems still use whole language, which is basically, if you read enough to kids, they will magically just pick it up. Mm. And 20% of the kids don't read that way. Beck is in a private school, which teaches an Orton-Gillingham way, which is a very systematic way of reading. They teach all the rules, which when he reads to me, I'm like, I didn't know that rule because I wasn't taught that as a kid. It's Public schools don't know what to do with these kids. Um, they pull them out and try to give them help and... It's not working. So it's definitely a disadvantage in the public schools. So you mentioned that 20% of the kids don't learn in the way that is typically taught. Right. Now, is that 20% number the incidence of dyslexia in the general population, or is that due to a variety of reasons? No, they say 20% of kids are dyslexic. Wow. It's Yeah, it's amazing that we have that many kids in public schools who are not being taught to read the way they their brains work. Fascinating. So I'm curious to come back to the question of whether you all see it as a, a limitation. I mean, um, so first of all, I will observe that Paul is one of my favorite people at Cognitech to work with. He's really, really, really good at his job at a company that is filled with people that are one less really at least good at their job, if that makes any sense. <laughs> and so I, because, okay, look, again, i not having – being at all educated about this topic, dyslexia is very firmly associated in my mind with, with being a limitation. But, but you know, so far, like, like I said, the only thing I've heard is, well, I can't read fiction or I couldn't even read fiction until fairly late in my life. I want to drill down on that a little bit more. Uh, maybe I'll take it back to Paul and then give uh, Alex and, uh, and or Mary another uh, chance to comment. Are, are there ways in which you have found it limiting that are not – simply due to you you mentioned left hand versus right handed that's that's almost like what i'm hearing you say is well my brain is different it's not worse or better it's just different and since most people are right handed it's harder to find things that are targeted at at me in the in the handedness case i mean the the not reading fiction thing is a much longer story and it's heavily rooted in like the fact that public schools just aren't very good at teaching kids who are dyslexic, like how to utilize that thought process, you know? So imagine going through school your entire life and not being, you know, like realizing you thought differently and then having to self-teach yourself the way you actually think about problems and the way you actually think about reading. And, and, but like, imagine trying to teach yourself how to read well, you know, like that's a, that's the hardest one to do. Mm. And so it just took a longer time for me to teach myself how to read really well, especially fiction. Hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's the only, like, I don't think it's a limitation at all. I just, to me, it's just like right-handed, left-handed. I just have a different way that I tackle things. But specifically third grade, I mean, was very, very difficult for me. And I remember crying really hard because like you're being told that you can't read or you're bad at reading and you're being put in this special group and like 
kids are sort of mean and they realize that special group is like, quote unquote, the dumb kids, you know, and it's like, I don't want to be a dumb kid. I want to read these other stories with my other friends. Reading is like social at that age. Um, and so it's difficult. Yeah, I definitely remember in third grade, uh, my my daughter and all her friends were um, big into a variety of series. I mean, it was really important to them that they all reading for them. It was Harry Potter and the uh, this other series is a very similar series. So I'll go back to um, Alex and Mary. Um, is that, I guess, I guess I'm really still on the topic of, 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 is it a limitation or is it, is it a difference? I mean, uh, other than the, like what Paul was talking about, do you, how do you, what do you, what do you think? I, I really think it's a difference and that's the way that, you know, we talk about it with our son. It, Cause it really is that, you know, just the brain uh, works differently. You know, the, the reading and writing parts, that are active, the parts of your brain that are active when you're, that when a dyslexic is reading, writing are different than they are for other, for other people. Uh, and that's not necessarily wrong. It's just different, <laughs> you know, and 500 years ago, those differences probably would not have been anything that anyone would have noticed. But, but now that, uh, you know, there's such a, a, you know, just in modern society, there's a focus on reading and it's, it's hard to, you know, you, you, or you use a computer, you know, everything is textual and any of those devices and, and you're just far more likely to, to, uh, it, it's just it, the set of things that people do has changed to where that happens to be squarely in the middle. So, and I think that the benefit of, of it is that dyslexics tend to have uh, this other style of creative thinking that, you know, there's a awful lot of, there's a very high incidence of dyslexia in uh, entrepreneurs and innovators and creative people. And, and so you see that that comes out in certain fields uh, in a lot of different places. And then I wanted to mention also that like uh, the school that our, our son goes to uh, has a specific class actually, which is called audio visual. It's mm-hmm. a, I, I don't, the name doesn't really, isn't really particularly helpful, but the, as far as I understand it, <laughs> the, the purpose of this class, which they go to every day is really in understanding how their brain works differently than other people's brains. And then also how to, how to see ways that they could, use different accommodations to uh, help them uh, learn in that other way. So if they need uh, to hear something read to them rather than read it or things like that. And then also it has a specific part that's around, that's focused around advocacy. So self-advocacy, the whole point of this program is that they're in the program and, and they in particular learn to read through this learning method, but then that they also have all the skills they need to go back into a public school and be able to advocate for themselves and say, I need this and I need this. And my brain works differently than these other kids. And I need this particular kind of assistance to do the work that you're asking me to do. That is awesome. It's totally fascinating. (laughs) I mean, it's almost, it's in a sense, it's almost as if they're being trained to be ambassadors and affect uh, cultural change, which is uh, amazing. I mean, if, because not only are they helping themselves in that sense, but potentially every other one of these 20% of the population that come after them. Yeah, they do a big project every year. What's that thing? The, um, the guitar thing that he did. Called, uh... I can't remember what the name of it is, but every year they do this project where they sort of present their disability and they present it to their tutorial teacher and to their parents. Demystification project, mm-hmm. where it's all about people think this and but I'm actually this and these are my strengths and these are places where I need special help and things like that. But what I liked about that demystification project was they talked about how everybody has a struggle. Everybody has something that they need to work on, not just back being dyslexic. And, and it's a it's, it's a fantastic school. And, and uh, I know Mary and I have talked uh, over and over again about how fortunate we feel, how privileged we feel that we're, we're able to pay to send to the school, uh, which is not cheap. And we feel exceptionally lucky. And I, we know, we know personally many people who we, many kids we, who we think would benefit from the techniques they use at the school and, uh, they're, they're not able to afford it. So that's why, you know, Mary has really done a fair amount of advocacy in trying to get uh, trying to understand how we can change the schools that we have 
um, because it doesn't make any sense that we should have to send them to a school that has these special things in it. Um, there's been studies that have shown that a lot of the, the, the teaching methods that they use for teaching um, kids with dyslexia actually work just as well on kids without dyslexia. So there's no, it doesn't make any sense to not be sort of embracing these kids in our normal public school system that we're all paying for. Uh, and I, I actually want to touch on Mary's advocacy in a minute, but before I forget, I was wondering if you would mind sharing the name of the school and we'll put a link, in, and if you are willing, we'll put a link in the show notes so that anybody that is looking to get more information about how this school does things and maybe get assistance in ha- making that happen near where they are. Do you mind sharing the name of the school? No, it's the Churchill Center in school. Okay, and that's in... Um, uh, it's in St. St. Louis. Louis. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what particular suburb it's in. That's okay. We'll put a link Declared in the show as. notes. People will be able to find that there. So thanks for that. So Mary, Alex had mentioned this to me before the show that you are involved in uh, doing adv- advocacy up to and including, I believe, changes in legislation. I wonder if you could talk about your work there at all. Oh, boy. Yeah, I, um, I'm part of a nationwide group called Decoding Dyslexia, and we are uh, trying to get things changed through legislation, uh, it is not easy. People are not educated about dyslexia. They they just think, oh, you just reverse letters or numbers. Um, and it's so much more than that. But we're trying to get a bill passed in Missouri that will train teachers to identify these kids at an earlier age and then to actually use an Orton-Gillingham-based reading program to not only teach kids with dyslexia, but just to keep, teach kids in general. Um, anybody can learn to read like this. And I spent an hour today calling my U.S. senators. There is the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which is replacing the uh, No Child Left Behind Act. And um, Senator Casey Cassidy was trying to get uh, dyslexia in the act to be its own sort of uh, separate category of identification and getting teachers to be trained on best practices to teach them. Um, I guess it's been kicked out. So I spent the past hour calling all the senators, asking them why it's not in the uh, proposed act um, and please put it back in. So that's what I was doing this afternoon. Oh, that's, uh, that's, that's meaningful work, and uh, I think it's – I mean, I still – I'm just utterly struck by the, the 20% number. That just is um, yeah. amazing to me that – I mean, not only that it's that uh, common, but also that, you know, here we are, and, uh, and yet that a, a portion of the population that big is not having its needs adequately addressed, at right. least by many public schools. So, well, when I was trained as a teacher 10, 10 15 years ago, I never – took a class on dyslexia, didn't even know what it was. And then when our child was struggling at the age of three, I started going online and researching, like, what is wrong with my child? And um, dyslexia kept coming up as maybe your child has dyslexia. So it was always in the back of my mind, but we didn't get him tested until the end of second grade and found out, oh, yeah, he really does have dyslexia. So I'm curious to to focus a little bit more on dyslexia itself. And uh, when you say Beck was uh, struggling at the age of three, what did that look like? Um, he has really poor memory. He could not identify his colors or his shapes at the age of three, four. Sequencing is really hard. So time sequencing. Oh, yeah. He, he still like doesn't days understand of the week yesterday. Or months and... of the year or for a long time, just the ideas of yesterday and tomorrow were really, really confusing. That like that level is, has gone away a little bit, but he still struggles with days of the week and and months of the year uh, and things like that. And just the fact that we're a house full of readers. We have books in every room. And I was taught as a teacher, just read, just read to your child and they will pick it up. And boy, we read a lot to Beck. And our other two had no problems at all reading. They just picked it up quickly. But he just was not picking it up and... Uh, we just a, knew a big, something was going on. A big part of dyslexia is the ability to associate the symbol that you see on the page and the sound in your head and then being able to connect that to other letters. And um, like those things, like it, you could just see that he really struggled with putting those mm-hmm. things together. And that's like classic dyslexia. 
um, symptoms. Well, and he also came to me one day and said, Mom, the, the words are sipping off the page. <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, he just needs glasses. So I took him to get his eyes checked. And like, no. And I was like, the words are slipping off the page? And he's like, yeah, they just fall right off. So Does that make, make any sense to you, Paul? <laughs> yes, it does. I'm actually, I was on mute, but I laughed a little bit and I smiled. <laughs> and, yeah. Reading the same sentence multiple times, that's also like a, a fabulous one. And being like, I feel like this sounds familiar, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm curious, you know, because uh, we, we get the same message, read to your kids a lot. Um, it's, you know, it's even technically part of their, well, not even technically, they actually send a sheet home with us and we track it for the, the younger of my two daughters. Do, do, um, if I have a dyslexic child, they, they may have difficulty reading themselves but do they still enjoy being read to him mean, i'm harking back here to um mm -hmm. paul's comment about fiction Be beck loves to be read to we still read to him every single night and he often will refuse to go to bed unless he's been read to he and loves stories and and can and has amazing comprehension oral comprehension um he remembers everything you read to him and can often recite it verbatim <laughs> and the importance is these kids are usually really really smart kids so if you were reading, if they were reading a book that they could actually read as a third grader, they might be reading on a kindergarten level. And the, um, the text is just obviously not rich at a kindergarten level. That's why um, kids with dyslexia need books that they cannot read read to them because it's such rich text and rich vocabulary. So it's really important to read to your kid who has dyslexia. Yeah, I think Beck has probably one of the best vocabularies of of our kids who are older and, and avid readers. I think Beck actually may, might have the best vocabulary, actually. He had a great he, vocabulary. He, he always had. People are always amazed at the words he uses and things like that. And it's from just being read to incessantly. But, uh, yeah, he loves it. So I want to turn back to Paul for a minute because um, something about Beck's story really struck me or, or the really aspects of dyslexia where um, – there's a difficulty connecting, and I think I'm going to put this wrong, but connecting the symbol on the page to other symbols because man to me, does that sound a lot like coding? And uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, people that have listened to the show know that Paul is the main force behind um, Pedestal, which is one of one of the, if I, in my opinion, fairly important things that we make as a company. It's a really significant piece of, of, of software, at least for us, and I, and I think for other people as well. And so you're obviously a very talented programmer, right, where you're doing a lot of symbolic manipulation and you're doing so through the medium of text. I wonder if you could talk about, like, how being dyslexic affects your experience of programming, at least to the extent that you can compare it to, you know, anyone else since you're not them. Sure. So uh, I started programming when I was in second grade and it was like an escape, actually, from a lot of other work. Like, I got to leave the classroom and go to the library. And uh, the reason why I want to start the story there is because it was like the first time that I realized I was really good at sort of connecting those different themes or whatever. So let's take Pedestal as an example. Like, there are a bunch of different parts to Pedestal, but it's really easy for me to fit that in my head and see how it all relates and see how that system actually looks like another system, like those kinds of things that programmers do are very natural for me to do. Like we were talking about if dyslexia was a limitation and like I joked in that, in that company chat that it's like my secret superpower, right? Cause I can like relate all these really weird things together and often do across systems. So, so yeah, so programming is not a problem, right? The speed of programming is so slow. It's like the speed of, thought for me is way more important and where I spend more of my time. Yeah. And you're also one of the people at the company. There are quite a few, but even among that group, I think you're something of a standout, very well read. I mean, it's, it's common. People have probably seen this with rich <laughs> where someone will say, Oh, are you aware of blah, blah, blah? Oh yes. That's in the paper by so-and-so. And I'm, I'm a technical illiterate when it comes to that level of understanding the academic works, but you're one of those people who are like, Oh yeah, I read that. That was really cool. Um, and again, you know, I come back to, and maybe this is maybe this is the part you were talking about where you're like, well, when when the information is presented, kind of top down, then that that jibes with the way that you process information. Is is that accurate? Like, do you have do you, do you think you have an easier time understanding the academic papers that you read so many of? 
Sure. I mean, if you think about what the academic literature is doing, it's like, here's a new concept that I want to introduce and here's how I proved it. Like for me being dyslexic, that's awesome. Show me that. And I instantly am relating it to other concepts. I mean, that's just what my brain is naturally doing. So, uh, what about, and I'll come back to Mary and Alex in a minute, but I so stay with Paul for the moment. What about recall? I know that uh, Alex and Mary mentioned that Beck, uh, that one of the ways they noticed that he was dyslexic was that his uh, his recall, particularly for sequencing, was was uh, not where their other kids had been at his age. Is that is that true or is it – does that – It will be a problem his entire life. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I largely don't recall details. They're not important to me. I will recall concepts. For me, it, uh, if you ask me the the exact detail or something, like I can't quote shows. Like this is an ongoing joke with my friends that like I'll try to quote a show and get the quote totally wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that will happen always. But I know the scene. Like I know what happened in the scene. It's interesting. It's quite it's quite difficult actually to talk about ways of thinking. I, I'm gonna throw it back to um to to Alex and Mary. So you mentioned that Beck is in a really good place um, now in the sense of having a educational environment that is is making an effort to accommodate his way of learning but it sounds like that there's a i don't know maybe maybe I'm inferring here but there's a, there's a horizon to that that the objective is to eventually be able to go back to the public school system is that the case with his education yeah we, he's sort of finishing his first year in the school and and we expect that he'll probably be there another 2 years is, you know, it could change, but that's the sort of the current expectation. And he's making really great progress on, on the, uh, they use the, the Wilson reading method mm-hmm. and it has like 12 parts, something like that. It's got a, a 12, it's like these 12 fairly large parts where they systematically teach you every rule of the English language <laughs> pretty much. And so he, he's making, uh, at or above normal sort of pace through that progress that they, that process that they usually see. So, so right now he looks like he's on track to probably transition back into public school in sixth grade, which is actually when the rest of his class will go from um, middle school or from elementary to middle school. Mm -hmm. So that's a perfect time for him to transition back in. It's when, you know, uh, many elementaries get merged into one middle school. So it's a, it's a great time to, uh, uh, merge back in. So we're hopeful that that will, things will work out that way. One of the other things that strikes me is to wonder, since we've talked before on the show about programming, obviously, but also specifically programming with children and how Paul said that he found that programming was a, almost a refuge for him um, in school. Do they make any use at his school or uh, at other, in other programs that you're aware of, of programming education for uh, children with dyslexia? I guess I don't know of anything like that really mm-hmm. that's special to um, dyslexic kids. Have you, uh, Alex or, or I guess Mary, have you done any, any programming with any of your kids? And, and if so, with Beck? None of them want to do it. Oh, that's what right. dad does. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, I've taught a few classes that are at our Sunday school and, and, uh, they've been in some of those and, and I've done stuff with scratch and some stuff with processing and, uh, something else, some inform seven interactive fiction stuff, but all of that, uh, the thing with programming languages is they're very textual. So in, in most cases, scratch isn't, and he has played with scratch a little bit, but I think the last time he really tried that was a while ago. So, so yeah, I don't, I don't have anything too interesting to, uh, well, I found about. even with my kids that, um, that there was, as you say, scratch is, is visual to a large degree, but there still is an element of, and, I, and I, I'm not saying I know how this would affect dyslexic children, but I found that with my kids, it was actually a barrier. Like it, until you read comfortably, I'm not doing it with my seven-year-old because she doesn't mm-hmm. really read on her own a lot right now. And, uh, you know, just being able to easily access the words because the symbols are not actually unique, if I remember right. I mean, they're they're colored, but they're not it's not like a, they all have an entirely distinct shape. And if they if uh-huh. you remove the words from it, you'd be able to know what you were doing. So I, I, I don't know. I'm just curious about that stuff because I'm always thinking about my, my 10-year-old, for instance, um, thinks she wants to be a programmer. I mean, maybe she will. It's just, you know, at 10, it's kind of the opposite of what you were saying, Alex, which is she wants to do everything that I do right now. I fully uh-huh. expect her to grow 
oh, yeah. way out mm. of that in the next couple of years. But at the moment, uh, she's interested and in, we've we've been having fun with it. But uh, I was just curious if based on Paul's experience, if it was something you'd seen in Beck. But uh, OK, interesting. Nope. None of our kids want to be what we are. So <laughs> there was one summer where, where my daughter came down and stole a how to program in C or C++ or something off my shelf. My goodness. And was <laughs> secretly reading it in her room. I hope it and was at least the Carnegie and Ritchie one. It uh, probably was. All right, but, good for her. Um, <laughs> but uh, and uh, I think that was a uh, pretty direct call for I want I want more attention from you, <laughs> more than a desire to program. <laughs> cool. At least that's how I took it. I mean, Craig, to to your story, I learned C when I was ten, and so you know who knows what's gonna what's gonna happen, right? Right. That's right. Eight is really quite young. And, uh, and it's not even, I think, I think it's just at the very beginning, at least in my experience of the age where you need, there's all sorts of things you can always do. I mean, there are, there are entirely visual environments for younger kids that are programming like, but I think, uh, even getting into stuff like scratch, which is kind of the, at least at what I've seen, the lowest edge of where you can start to do. And I'm using the term loosely real programming, uh, if you will, um, you know, something approaching, say a Turing complete language. I, I think, for most kids, eight is maybe just at the very edge of where they would start to be able to do that. So it'll be interesting to check back in with, with you two and see if in a, in a few years and see if Beck has uh, found his way over to our side of the world at all. I think he wants to be a rock star. Yeah. Yes, so this is interesting. <laughs> I, I think we should take a total detour from dyslexia and talk about this stuff because uh, Alex has posted a few videos and this is just such a cool thing that it's worth sharing. I don't know, uh, Mary, you mentioned it. Maybe you want to exp uh, elaborate on what you were saying just now. Beck the, wanting to be a rock star? Well, this is the School of Rock stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the School of Rock. It's a great little program. Basically, once a week, they get a 45-minute private lesson. Beck plays bass. And then once a week, they get well, about an hour, couple hour um, session where they're with an actual band, other kids, kind of their level. And they play together. Uh, they play Led Zeppelin songs and Green Day songs, and um, it's a great program. And they sort of they they start off in what they call Rock One Hundred and One, which is it's usually a group of younger kids, and and they're just practicing there. And then periodically they'll have like a showcase where they'll play some songs for the parents or whatever. And then once they sort of move out of that that basic program, they they move into what they call performance groups, and sort of every semester. They have a set of three or four different groups that, that, depending on, you know, size, that get set up where they focus around, like right now, our daughter is in the Zeppelin show and our other son is in a Green Day show. Uh, and then Beck and his sister did an ACDC show last, last fall. And so they learn a lot of songs. And at the end, they actually do a real concert. Uh, and they, they book local music venues and they get sometimes... You know, they get uh, and they sell drinks and sell tickets and get it's on a, stage and they it's have a, a real concert. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you posted some videos and they're just great to watch. I mean, really, obviously, the kids are having a lot of fun and they're doing very well. And it's it's, it's super cool to watch. Um, but it occurs to me to, to ask whether there's a connection here because to the, our main topic today, because, um, of course, Paul himself is uh, is quite a musician, has been in bands, has, has DJed. The other day we were having a conversation in an internal chat room and someone posted a piece of music and I said, that sounds a little bit, you know, like it might have a polyrhythm in it. And uh, Paul said, uh, no, actually, it's what was the term? What was it? It wasn't polyrhythm. It was poly. I think we were talking about polymeters in general. Polymeters but... in general. And you're like, yeah, yeah that's a whatever. And you just rattle it off. I'm like, man. And I wasn't being serious. I was like, man, I hate you for being able to do that. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I hear um, obviously all your kids are, are interested in music. But uh, I'd be curious to get Paul's perspective as to whether there's any impact on the, the way of thinking that dyslexia enables in you and uh, connection with music, because you are clearly a very musical person. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess I, I would defer to the literature of people who have studied dyslexia and music, mm -hmm. but for well, Mary, a long time, all through being young, I mean, I, I just, I played music. All I wanted to do was play music. You know, I was in bands and went on tour and have done lots of tours and then DJing. I mean, it's just been for a while. It's like, I didn't want to be a programmer. I just did, I was programming to pay bills and I wanted to be a musician, which is very difficult to do. And then, uh, rediscovered my love of, of programming. So, so Mary, I know that you, um, have spent a, a fair amount of energy on, um, 
you know, advocating for changes and understanding dyslexia. Do you know if there's any connection between uh, music and uh, dyslexic dyslexia? You know, I have not read that. And unfortunately, I wish I could say Beck is a musical genius, <laughs> but I don't think he is, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I think if he could just be a rock star right now and go on tour and do the whole rock star life, that's what he would want to do. But unfortunately, he doesn't practice. That's changing a little bit. I think some bit. of that's just the age. And and uh, I, I think for him, I think it's actually been, I see a little bit that, like, I think reading music is hard for him. Mm-hmm. So, like, he plays bass and, and, you know, his teacher writes out tabs. And for a long time, I never saw him look at one of those tabs. It was always from memory. Uh, and just recently, though, I have seen him starting to read from it. Just, the, just in the last couple of weeks, really. Uh, and he's really been actively practicing more. But and the so, cool thing about him, and I have, I think this has to do with his dyslexia, is he will just get on there and play. Mm. Like yeah. he'll just take markers and put them on his fingers and then he'll, <laughs> what is that called? His funk fingers, yes. That his funk fingers. Thing. And awesome. he'll just like hammer something out. Um, he'll go down in the basement and he'll play with it. I've got like an amp that has all the effects on it and stuff, you know. And he'll just spin through the effects and find something cool and find like look around the basement, like find something to bang on the bass while he's playing it. You so know, I, I think that has to do with his creative dyslexic yeah. side. He had some he's almost fearless. less Claypool stuff going on the other day. Absolutely. I was like, oh, what is he doing down there? And are there some of drumming? <laughs> they sounded like uh, the band. I don't know. Les Claypool's band. Oh, Primus? Yes. Like Primus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, you got to turn him on to Tony Levin if you haven't already. Yeah, yeah. You would dig that. But I don't, I, I've not read a connection between art and kids with dyslexia. It's a lot of the entrepreneurs. And yeah. uh, what do you think that, is there any thought around, I mean, I'd be curious what your perspective and then if there's a more, um, any, any kind of rigorous analysis, I'd be curious to hear that too. What, what is the, because I don't know if people know this, but Paul is also a pretty serious entrepreneur. He's been involved in in several significant uh, efforts on that front. But do, Mary, do you know if there's any, thought into why that connection exists? Well, I think it's, it's the way their brain works. And also, it kind of goes back to that struggling piece. A lot of um, successful entrepreneurs had to really struggle through school. Mm. Um, and it makes me wonder, is there a connection between like struggling? Learning to deal with adversity like mm. sets yeah. you up to be an entrepreneur. You're going to fail all the time. But you know to work through it, you know. But I think there's also that that brain piece, just looking at things differently and and solving problems, thinking outside the box, definitely. Mm -hmm. So I I don't know. Is it a disservice that um, Beck is going to a school who's going (laughs) to teach him not to struggle? (laughs) Am I taking away something? I don't know. Um, Well, I mean, I I think we all know how slow cultural change and how slow legislation changes. I, I suspect that although you're obviously doing... Um, a wonderful thing by your son. Uh, speaking from the outside, at least, I imagine that it's not going to be all sunshine and roses when he does go back to the to mm. public schools. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and also just like learning how you learned. That was like what I found empowering when I was younger. Uh-huh. You know, once I learned exactly how I learned, it didn't bother me that like teachers were telling me to like go outside the classroom and like <laughs> teach myself in the hallway mm. because like, uh, I was better at that, you know. I was better at that than sitting in the classroom, and I think I would be very excited to see how he progresses. Yeah, I gotta say, uh, I, I actually had that experience, Paul, that you had, where there were a couple times in uh, in my schooling where you know I had I had been a grade up in math, but when I got to the next grade, that opportunity wasn't available anymore, and so I was handed a textbook and said, "Well, well, we're all doing whatever it was, fifth grade math." <laughs> Here's the sixth grade textbook. The schedules don't line up, so you can't take sixth grade math with the sixth graders. Here, teach it to yourself. And I completely failed at that task. That was the year that I did maybe a quarter of a year's worth of work in one year. And so it's uh, I, I really think it's incredibly valuable to learn how you learn. That's actually something that I try to do with my kids is to observe them learning and figure out what works for them. And then make it explicit to them to say, we're doing this because when you behave this way, it results in you acquiring these skills better. I think that, you know, there's a few things, uh, self-discipline and understanding the model of your learning that just make everything else better. So I I think that's a a huge advantage that uh, Alex, you and Mary are giving to to your son by putting him in an environment where that happens. It's not like, Paul, you 
were able to figure it out on your own. Yeah. I, I remember a professor uh, probably in college telling me one of the most important things you can learn here is how you can teach yourself something, you know, how you can pick up a book and learn something new or go, you know, figure something out on your own. Because once you leave the school, nobody's ever going to teach you anything again. You're, it's up to you after this point. That was a, probably a good lesson. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that ties into sort of the entrepreneur stuff, right? Like if you realize there's a challenge ahead of you or there's some piece of information you don't have, like when you are dyslexic and you're forced to learn how you learn really early on, you say, oh, I'll just go learn that thing. You know, like it's not a big challenge. You know, I definitely see like my wife struggles thinking like when she needs to acquire a new skill, like how am I going to get this? Like who's going to teach this to me? And it's like, no, you just go out and you do it, you know? <laughs> well, I see that we're sort of coming towards the end of the time, but uh, I want to make sure that we uh, we cover anything else on the topic of dyslexia or um, or any other topic for that matter that people would like to talk about before we do close it down. So um, I don't know if anybody had anything in mind or an agenda or anything that they really want to make sure that we uh, let people know. Is there Was there anything that we, that we missed? Uh, Mary, maybe I'll start that question with you. Was there something that you'd like people to be aware of on this topic? Mm, I think I would just like to ask Paul a question. Oh, please. Uh, Paul, if you could give my son any sort of advice to get him through the school years, uh, what would that be? Uh, Once I learned to sort of stop caring about it, I was a lot happier. You know, like Mm. I realized I just wasn't going to be good at certain things. And the public school had this expectation that I would be. And just like letting go of that and focusing on what I was really good at made it a lot better for me. You know, I I did very well through school once I started just focusing on that piece. You know, it really is a superpower. I mean, like he will go through life and he will be able to do things that people cannot do. And that is like, that's awesome. Once you realize that and you sort of harness it. That's great advice. Thank you. Well, well, Mary, I feel like you, uh, and this was great. I'm glad you did that, but you, you almost preempted our end question here, <laughs> which we can come back to in a minute. I want to make sure that we've <laughs> certainly given Alex and Paul a chance to um, to close us close us out with anything else they wanted to talk about today. I just want to want to say thanks to my wife because she's been a fearless advocate for uh, Beck, and uh, I don't think we would be where we are now if she had not been so aggressive for <laughs> his entire life trying to figure out ways to help him learn better and things like that. So I'm very grateful. That's, so that's my so thunder. Oh, <laughs> keep going, Mary. Sorry. So your advice is always listen to your wife. Is that your advice? <laughs> yes, that is excellent advice. Okay, I like that. Speaking as a husband, I think uh, that's pretty good advice. <laughs> uh, Paul, anything? Yeah, I just, I mean, that was the, that was the thunder I was going to roll with as well. You know, it's just like the work that Mary is doing is, extremely important and often thankless. And I want to take the moment to really thank her as somebody who like, as they're talking about the public school system, it's like, I lived all of those pains. Like I know what that story is like. And it's really great that there are people trying to actively change that. I I think that's fantastic. I mean, I would add to that, just say it's, it's great when people advocate. I mean, you're obviously uh, advocating for your son, but at the same time, you're not advocating merely for your son. You've got to be thinking to yourself, well, I'm going to work now. It's entirely possible the fruits of this effort won't won't pay off until, you know, your son is already an adult and not able to benefit right. from elementary legislation. <laughs> They're not kids for long. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I think that's great. Well, boy, that's that's a ton of good advice. We said we had listened to your wife. That's important. We had uh, we had Paul's advice to to Beck. But I will say we do we do try to end as as listeners to the show know with with advice uh, by one of our guests uh, that they like. Um, and I will I will throw it back to you, Mary, for this again. And and this doesn't have to be um, advice that you like to give. It could be advice that you received or advice that you overheard or a- anything at all. Um, you're you're also of course certainly welcome to say. The things that we already said are great, but I wonder if you have any anything you'd like to end us on. What about the advice your mom gave you? Oh, I was going to say that, actually. Okay. My mom said, she gave me the best advice. She said, you can never love your kids too much. So that's that was her advice to me. That's great. Very simple, but very uh, heartfelt. 
I like it a lot. I can think of no better place to end than there. Although, obviously, we're not quite done because I have to thank you all so much for coming on. Um, really fascinating. I learned a ton. I mean, I was... I think it's fair to say that I had what is the unfortunately typical perception of the condition uh, dyslexia. And uh, now my mind feels like it has been opened wide. I mean, starting from just how prevalent it is <laughs> about how, you know, I never understood Paul's comment about how it's a superpower. And now I can absolutely see that. Uh, and, 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 and of course, that there are still challenges remain, but the, so glad to hear that there are people like Mary working on uh on overcoming those. And uh, I just feel just better informed. You know, I've got two kids and there's a thousand kids at their school and, you know, apparently 200 of them have the same challenges or similar. So that can't be but a good thing to know. So anyway, I, that's my long, long winded way of saying thank you, uh, Mary, Alex, and Paul for coming on the show today and talking to us about this important topic. Thank you so much. Thanks, thank Greg. You. It was great yeah, to have you. you. Oh, no, it's great to have you. And uh, I would love to, I would love to come back to this topic. I really would. I mean, I know I, I say this often that we should have people back on, and I always do mean it. I think in this case, it would be even cooler than usual to come back in uh, a couple years or whenever and just say, "How is that? How is it going? Like, how did, how is Beck doing?" I mean, it just—I've uh, met him actually. I met him at Strange Loop very briefly when uh, Mary, you were there with the kids at the very end of the show, um, and uh, it just—it'd be, it'd be really cool to hear, especially given his education and the the good work they're doing at the school so anyway it'd be cool to see it but uh i will stop blathering on we will uh thank you again for being on the show everybody and uh thanks uh thanks to our listeners as well this has been the cognicast You have been listening to The Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech, Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to The Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash podcast. Our guests today were Paul DeGrandis on Twitter at OPaulese, that's O-H-P-A-U-L-E-E-Z, Alex Miller, on Twitter at Pure Danger, P-U-R-E-D-A-N-G-E-R, and Mary Kayser Miller. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. <laughs>